welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life. It's a project based at the University of Connecticut that explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Eddie Glaude. Eddie is James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor in the Department of Religion, and he's also Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Eddie's work deals fundamentally with questions concerning democracy, faith, and race in the contemporary United States. He's the author of many articles and columns and books, and his most recent book is titled An Uncommon Faith, A Pragmatic Approach to the Study of African-American Religion. As listeners might recognize, Eddie is also a regular commentator on MSNBC. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. So great. Let's get to it. So let me begin with a little preamble. Given that the podcast is devoted to conversations about the state of contemporary political discourse, it's probably not surprising that it's uh, common for the episodes <laughs> to lead to some pretty bleak places. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can imagine. So uh, I wanted to maybe d- d- sort of uh, shift keys uh, from minor to major. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to take up one of your own favorite themes, which I think is nicely encapsulated in Du Bois's image of a condition. Uh, he even calls it a hope. That is, as he says, not hopeless but a bit unhopeful. Yeah. Now, what a wonderful capturing of a, a kind of conflicted stance that I think many of us very overtly find ourselves in. Right. So you wrote a piece for Time back in November. Uh, it was in reaction to three pretty horrific events involving uh, you know, considerable carnage in the United States. And in that piece, you called for citizens to, and I'm quoting you here, Eddie, mm-hmm. confront the abject ugliness that lurks beneath our cherished way of life. Now, that's the bleakness. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, the hopeful part was you were recommending that we confront that abject ugliness so that we might be the light. Mm-hmm. And I take it that's the light of social change. Right. So maybe one way to start is, can you explain that stance? Can you explain that sentiment? Yeah, sure. It, it you know, it comes out of a, a basic uh, blues sensibility, you know, ah. that's rooted in, in the African-American tradition that is kind of grappling with, on a, on a kind of consistent basis, the reality of evil, small e, right? That there are forces afoot in the world that consistently frustrate one's aspirations, that undermine one's sense of, 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 of life as it could be, and offering in some ways or creating in some ways a, con- a general condition of precarity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's at the heart of a kind of blues ethos, right? You think about B.B. King's famous, no, famous line, nobody loves me but my mother and she could be jiving too. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this kind of understanding that the world is not in some ways ordered for the good, that there are practices, ways of being in the world that literally frustrate one's aspirations, one's aims uh, to be 
uh, otherwise. And so what does it mean to take that seriously and still muster the courage to, to imagine oneself otherwise? So you could put it, in, let me make it more concrete. True. You can imagine enslaved people in the context of, anti, of the antebellum South um, and nothing in their experience, their immediate experience would lead them to uh, grab hold of languages of freedom, to imagine their condition of living any differently. Uh, but yet, there's something about uh, the despair of slavery that nevertheless produced a kind of imaginative leap so that people could see beyond the opacity of their condition and imagine freedom apart from it, right? And mm -hmm. so it's precisely how does one think about possibility in the midst of the darkness without kind of retreating into the comfort of a kind of Panglossian optimism, right? Or without falling into the trap of a kind of Schopenhauer and pessimism. So I think it's it's my kind of uh, riff on on Jamesian miliarism, you know? It's my uh -huh. kind of riff on the faith in, uh, that, that Dewey has in the capacity of human beings to transform their circumstances without giving... Uh, short riff to to the reality of evil that frustrates our efforts to change the world. I see, and I take it that part of that uh, that riff, as you put it, has to do, you know, but, but part of it requires, I guess, and I take it that this is also a blue sensibility, requires the kind of confronting of uh, the facts of uh, injustice, the uh, the fact of you know th that our lives are in some ways. Um, impacted for good or ill by chance, uh, mm -hmm. certainly things that are not in any way tied to desert or merit. Exactly. That it's, a, it's a kind of recognizing that there's something insurmountable about the sources of despair. Is that right? Yeah, it may not be insurmountable, but it's certainly oh. the, the reality of, of the environment within which the organism finds him or herself, right? Or itself, right? right? So it, it, it makes, because, you know, none of this, none of it's settled beforehand, it seems to me. We could make certain kinds of, we could draw certain kinds of conclusions about the likelihood of something uh, evidencing itself uh, as opposed to not, right? So it, it, it makes sense uh, from, from a certain vantage point not to believe that the United States will actually ever do right uh, with regards to the issue of racial justice, given its history. Mm -hmm. But there are these moments of breakthrough that allow you to imagine uh, the possibility that eventually or perhaps uh, in the moment we find ourselves that the, that the country will do right. So I think, I think as, you, as you hit it, as you said, and I think you hit it right on the head here, uh, the, the point is to acknowledge the evils that we confront, the contingency of our circumstance, right? Uh, a wonderful example would be Toni Morrison's Beloved. You know, mm. there there is this this line that um, Baby Sucks uh, tells to the daughter Denver as Denver is afraid to leave the yard, and and she then describes all of this evil that she herself has experienced, uh, and she said, "Didn't I tell you that you know this is how I got my limp? Did I tell you this is that how this these are the number of babies that I lost?" And and then right. she ends it by saying, "Know it, but gone out of the yard." Right. Right, and the know it is to know that evil is a, an inherent part of, of of the world that we inhabit, and and to the extent to which that's true, uh, we can't stick our heads in the sand. We have to confront it, and particularly confront the evil that's in us, right? right, and our complicity with it. If we're going to open ourselves up to a different way of being in the world, 
Right. And would you say that uh, one of the ways that that evil within us manifests, or one of the ways it can manifest, let's say, is, well, in the, the very obvious way, not confronting the evil, or as you said, putting our heads in the sand. But is there also a, a, a similar kind of risk in adopting a stance that is, again, to mm-hmm. bring William James into this, yeah, mystic in that Jamesian sense that somehow, if we just sit back and watch things unfold, the universe or the, 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 the society or the social conditions are such as to sort of naturally resolve themselves in progress. Absolutely. You know, as if the, you know, the arc of the universe bends towards justice, right? As if, <laughs> you know, to quote Dr. King, right? Um, right. But you're absolutely right. It's, you know, I think, you know, to, to go back to James, you know, the healthy mindedness has its, has its benefits. But, you know, James, even if, even as he criticizes the sick soul, he sees something more, uh, attuned to 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 the complexities of 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 life. That is that two storied existence, right? Right. There's something about acknowledging those things that frustrate uh, the good. Those elements of of our lives, of our living, that that not only frustrate the good but actively undermine, right, the instantiation of the good. And so, it seems to me, Bob, that that. It's it's not only just simply kind of uh, sticking one's head in the sand, but it's also offering up a version of the world that is that is so neat that it it looks like Disneyland, right? <laughs> um, and 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 coming or out of Disney, the, or a Disney cartoon or a Disney, or a movie. Disney cartoon yeah, yeah, or a yeah. movie, right? Yeah. And coming out of tra- out of the tradition. That I that I write, you know, uh, the tradition out of which I write, you know, that's not that's just doesn't make any sense. It's too much. It's too much death, right? It's too much blood. It's too much darkness there, and you know, and it's and what's so interesting is that all of that death and darkness and blood, you know, produces this amazing blue scale, which at the heart of it is the most unstable chord you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that produces this extraordinary sound. That's beautiful. Right. So what does it mean to take seriously, right, the ugliness of the world as a kind of ground for, for human action? Um, seems to me it, it's 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 a much better way of 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 getting about this this arduous task of living, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes great sense. And um, we are, uh, in case listeners haven't discerned this already, we are both great fans of William James. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, Dewey, in my case, yeah, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, me too. Um, and particularly, um, you know, the, the, the parts of James that I, I don't think are often fully appreciated, at least in my discipline, in the, in, you know, in, in philosophy, you know, the the stuff on value in James, mm-hmm. especially the non-theoreticals and the stuff where he's really interested in the sort of phenomenology of the moral life, right. Right? where he's right. really interested in the world where there are real losses. <laughs> that, that, that bitterness that is permanently at the bottom of the cup, as you yeah, put it. Right? That's exactly right. The serpent that's over everything. Exactly. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. um, you know, he's, he's got, it's, it's very, evo- these are very evocative images, but you know, the philosophical insights are, are, are deep and he's not often given credit. I mean, sometimes in philosophy, at least he's read as a kind of happy go lucky uh, mind. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, that's so wrong. And, and yeah, can't, 
can't possibly that that's not that's not right. He's not a you know he's 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 not somebody who believes progress is inevitable. <laughs> but to get back to the piece though, so sure. the title, which I don't know if this is your title or if some editor at Time uh, gave your piece this title. Uh, I know that that sometimes happens. But the title uh, under which it was published back in November is "Politicians Can't Stop Hate." We must right. change America ourselves. Now, that's, again, a nice juxtaposition that I think um, characterizes both the Du Boisian, not hopeless, but, you know, a bit unhopeful. And, and maybe Du Bois uh, was himself channeling this sort of William James idea of the strenuous mood. Uh, um so it, 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 we must change America ourselves and not rely on sort of standard uh, appeals to, as you say in the piece, you know, just sort of calls for more civility in politics or a better way of doing politics or, you know, appeals to uh, our political leaders to come in and, and, and fix or respond properly to hate. Yeah, how does the kind of social change that we need to pursue, uh, how does that happen? Well, you know, it happens in a number of different ways, Bob. You know, I uh, uh, it happens in the context of movements, hmm. uh, grassroots efforts to to respond to systemic uh, injustice or uh, undeserved harm. Right? It could be you know you can organize around uh, the murder of a child by police officers, and and in the context of organizing that and in, in, in the solidaristic efforts with others, you find yourself transformed in that moment where your understanding of justice is becomes more expansive. Hmm. That can happen. It can happen in the context of organizing around uh, a livable wage. You know, you think about all the people who are fighting for for fifteen a fifteen dollar minimum yep. wage. So the fight for fifteen movement. It can happen in in those uh, intimate spaces where kind of narrow understandings of, of of human doing and suffering are challenged by people we love. Right. So you can I have friends who whose sisters have came out to them mm. and they themselves were evangelical, conservative evangelical Christians and and they had to kind of, and the fact that someone they loved came out forced them into a kind of reassessment of the inventory of their commitments. I see. Right. So so there there are a number of ways in which we can we can be transformed in association. Uh, with others, a kind of deep and genuine mutual uh, mutuality with with our fellows. Part of what I was trying to say in that piece in time is that you know I think it's important for us to understand that legislation, political acts, declarations of of charity, aren't sufficient. That at the heart of our problem in this country. It seems to me it cuts to the question of character of who we take ourselves to be. You know, I, I in my book Democracy in Black, and you know, it, it was a it was a trade book, and but it had all of these ideas in the back. You know, I've been I was reading Human Nature and Conduct, and 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 reading Dewey on Aristotle, and and you know, I was talking about I, I used to introduce this 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 concept called the value gap, hmm. and I said we talk about the empathy gap and the achievement gap and the wealth gap in this country, but underneath it all is is something called the value gap, and the value gap is the belief that white people matter more than others. And to the extent to which that belief obtains, no matter what the inputs are, the outputs will be the same. Right. We will still have systemic injustice, right? And so part of – then I then I made the move to say that the value gap is sustained through what I call racial habits. 
And I wanted I moved to habit talk, Bob, because, you know, unconscious bias lets folks off the hook, it seems to me. But habit talk cuts to character. Right. right? So what happens is that the value gap lives in how we are habituated. And then so so and those habits then reflect who we take ourselves to be. And so we're willing to throw democracy into the trash bin because we we are we aren't actually the kinds of people that democracy demands, that democracies require. Because of our commitment to this belief that some people are better than other because better than others because of the color of their skin, and so so one of the things I want to I'm, I'm trying to reach for in the timepiece, and I'm reaching for all the time in my work, is that it cuts deeper. The, the 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 resolution of 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 this crisis cuts deeper than just simply politicians passing laws and 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 talking talking in 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 acceptable ways about the question of racial justice it it cuts to the heart of 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 character formation how do we create the circumstances whereby we become better human beings Right. Mm. And and that's why I began where I began in movements, in efforts to create a better world. When we're doing things concretely with people around or in pursuit of goods that we share, that we hope to bring into being or into existence, then we are transformed in that doing. And we're on the road to becoming the kinds of people that democracies require. Right. So I wonder if there's a if there's a if there's a puzzle uh, in this picture, though. Mm-hmm. So you know, one of the one of the things that often comes up in this podcast and many of the episodes are about um, you know the, the, these phenomena that we we variously refer to under the under the the sort of uh, with the with the word polarization right mm-hmm. <laughs> um where uh you know there's lots of different phenomena that are sort of being referred to by that word and all the rest but to simplify just a little bit i suppose you know th- these are uh this is a condition where political identities as constructed by existing political institutions, mainly parties, mm-hmm. <laughs> have found ways, almost in the way that a good marketing strategy sort of succeeds, have found ways to kind of claim our collective lives for partisan, you know, for, for antecedently um, identified and delineated partisan objectives. And so that the kind of movements that uh, I think you rightly point to as places where social change happens sometimes can be, you know, we even have a word, the word astroturf to sort of pick that this is something that's designed to look like a popular movement when really it's actually very carefully curated and orchestrated by forces that at the end of the day are invested in things not changing very much. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you know if there isn't something to be said for the kind of uh, example that you 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 used the second kind of example where someone you love you've got an antecedent attachment to this person has mm-hmm. come out and your value commitments are such to dispose you to think certain ways about certain in certain negative ways about uh, uh, gays and lesbians. And now you're confronted with this need to, as you say, readjust the inventory where it looks like that's that might be a different kind of prompting to reflect on one's character and one's values. Do you see those to be different or? Yeah, to a certain degree, they, they are. I mean, I think the latter, I mean, the, it's easier 
right? When 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 you're confronted with someone you love, right? And to hold on to the view, the prior commitment, would mean that your relationship with that person, with whom that you that you've loved all your life, I suppose, would would fundamentally change, right? Right. Would you? Does, would it mean that I would no longer? socialize with my sister? Would it mean that I would think that she was condemned to go to hell? Would it mean, you know, all these things, right? So it's 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 the occasion to engage in the kind of reassessment of one's commitments. Um, it's easy. It, the, the prompt is easier, mm. right? Um, you don't have to do the the, 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 the prior work of, of assessing whether or not she's genuine or, mm. or serious or whether or not this is in good faith or, or the like. But at, at a broader level, beyond outside of the, the, the people we know and the people we love, there are there are moments where movements, um, conflict happens, and uh, we're thrown back onto our commitments. How where do we stand in relation to this? And to ask that question is not to necessarily assume that what we're confronting is what it is represented to be. Right. It actually occasions right deeper inquiry, right? What does it mean to look at the Tea Party, right, in that moment when it emerged right after the election of Barack Obama, and what did it mean for I'm in the press? What is what might have what might have happened if we would have interrogated the claims, right, around economic fragility and uh, an overall resentment around big government uh, taking over healthcare. And 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 not dismiss uh, the more racist dimensions of those tea, of the Tea Party, mm. right? That we were encountering as it was happening. Right. In, in other words, and you know, to cut to cut to the chase here, it seems to me that the, the moment in which we're confronted with the event that throws us back onto our commitments, we're in the midst of inquiry, which requires of us a, 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 a thorough understanding of the event itself. As well as an you know an, an honest assessment of the commitments that orient us in one direction as opposed to another, and and that is hard work. That's harder to do right. than than just simply oh my god I love my sister what am I doing, right? right. <laughs> that so the former is hard. I mean I mean it's it's it, I think it's, it requires much it asks or demands actually much more of us in those moments and oftentimes Bob we we do it too quickly right. And then we find ourselves in the middle, saying, "Oh my God, this isn't what I thought it was." Right, right, right. Right. We, we, right. So we we do it in a way that is um, is not reflective. I mean, it's we, we rely exactly. on antecedent habits of association and affiliation and loyalty Perfect. without reinvestigating or doing the, the 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 recalibration or seeing if recalibration is necessary. So political agendas and ideals in the face of these conflicts and situations of doubt are presented to us as the obvious answers that people like you who believe the things that you believe and vote the way that you vote ought to just adopt. Exactly. And then the broader question, well – has the world changed in ways that would require me as the kind of person who's been the way I've been in the past, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, change, you know, change mm -hmm. something about uh, uh, my priorities or the way I understand my values? That's, yeah, that is much more demanding. 
And if that's the, so here's the, the, the word, if that's the way that we are being called on in this time piece that you wrote to, uh, to try to change America ourselves. Yeah. That's a, that's a tall order, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard as hell. <laughs> and it, it, put, it places, it places an extraordinary burden on organizers. Right. Right. In terms of creating the conditions uh, under which uh, people can engage in the kinds of assessments requisite for fundamental reordering of who they take the, take themselves to be, a kind of shift in the center of gravity of the moral self. What? How does that happen in movements? How does it happen in struggle? And and so it it, it is it it requires a kind of democratic sensibility that cuts all the way down, right? Where people aren't asked to just follow. Right. And they're not asking they're they're not just uh you know engaging in sloganeering or they're not just right reaffirming or or built, you know, in some ways, how can we put it, Bob? Just kind of, you know, putting on a big poster board, these are my commitments, see I'm woke. Yeah. Or these yeah. sorts of things. Right. No, 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 no. The moment requires of us, it seems to me, right? An honest and it's and you know, to confront oneself in that way is to confront you know, the past that lives in us in this current moment hmm. is to confront the ugliness that makes us who we are. So you see, the the, the formulation uh, in the Time magazine was really weighted with 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 all of this stuff that, that you're getting me to talk about <laughs> now. <laughs> because it, it seems to me at the heart of a different kind of politics, a different way, a, a radical democratic politics, right, that can get us out of our silos, that can get us out of our comfort zones, to, to actually do the hard work of of becoming a new creation right well that's that yeah sense. no that's it, it's it's not only sounds right to me it's also uh, has the virtue of being fascinating and as sometimes in philosophy we say something worth trying for <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly even if we fall on our face yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> eddie it's you know it's always uh great to to hear you talk and it's very nice to talk to you and i want to thank you for your time sure i want to get to one sort of last thing if we in the sure. last five minutes or so so you know as i'm sure you're aware and there's a lot of talk in the academy and let me say in particular there's a lot of talk within professional philosophy i don't know if other disciplines are uh, following suit in this way or similar in this way. There's a lot of talk in the academy about the importance of public-facing work, and, and there's a lot of calls uh, for professors to take up the role of the public intellectual, a lot of uh, nostalgia for the days of uh, John Dewey and mm -hmm. Bertrand Russell and Hannah Arendt and uh, folks who, you know, would regularly show up in the New York Times and, you know, proclaim something or declare something, and then that was news in a way. Now, of course, uh, this is mainly talk within the academy. <laughs> so, you know, we're prodding each other to do something, uh, but those conversations and proddings go on, you know, inside our offices. But, you know, you, uh, you've successfully made the connection. I'm not going to say it's a transformation. You've made the connection from the academy mm -hmm. to the public. Does that reflect a view that you have about the public responsibility of intellectuals? Is there something that you wish other sort of publicly minded professors who have this ambition, you know, what, what would you say we should, how should we in the academy be doing business differently? Well, I mean, there, that, those are layered questions, yeah, yeah. I think. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and some, in some ways, very different questions right. in, in some ways, but, but, you know, the one hand on the, the you know, the first question uh, is, it, this is a logical extension of my commitment to 
to to the philosophy of pragmatism. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've I've always been struck by that wonderful line in in uh, you know the influence of Darwin on, on philosophy, on more, you know, by on, of Darwinism on philosophy by Do- John Dewey, right? And remember, Dewey, Dewey says in time, I think he says something like philosophy must become a method of of what locating and interpreting uh, the more serious conflicts that occur in life, right? right? It, it has to become a method of moral and political diagnosis and prognosis. Mm-hmm. And so I remember reading that saying, yes, this is this is interesting to me. And then I remember reading uh, Cornell Cornell West's History of American Pragmatism and the Evasion. The evasion you know, of philosophy. It, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the evasion of philosophy. And he, he describes American pragmatism as a form of kind of, you know, social criticism right. of, of, of America itself, right? That that it's engaged in sustained reflection uh, on the country and, and its and, and its and its purported commitments. Uh, and so there's there's always been to my mind, at least how I came to philosophy, uh, and it might be because I came to philosophy through the religion department. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's always been outward facing. I've never been quite interested in abstract philosophical puzzles and more interested in how might I bring my skill set to skill set to bear on the problems of men and women. Mm-hmm. And so the way in which I've interpreted that is it is I love to I try to what I try to do over and over again, and I love doing it, is to try to think seriously in public with others, not to bring insight from on high. Right. Uh, but to kind of engage in nuance and and careful thinking uh, with others about the problems that we confront, and and to do so in a way that my mom can read, <laughs> right? So so that means I'm kind of resisting, which was another part of the question that you asked, uh, the professionalization and specialization that has happened in the in the modern academy, mm. um, and so there's a way in which a kind of obscure writing, a kind of, you might even describe avant-garde vocabulary uh, that signals one's uh, mastery of a particular language. And the more obscure and specialized you are, the the smarter or the better you're standing right. among our colleagues. I, I, I want to, res- I resist that. I want to think about issues that, that will advance the fields that I'm in but I want to do so in a way that actually serves as a, a, a good grounding for my interventions in the public domain. Like I said about Democracy in Black, for example, I remember sitting down with my editor at Crown, which is a division of Random House, and I was like, yo, Doc, I got to go back to the academy. I'm not just going to write. Th- this has to have some depth to it. And so we found a way uh, to write about all of these issues. I mean, Sheldon Wolin is animating that text, sure. you know, Dewey and Aris. So, so it's the short answer, because I know we're short on time, is it's my way of just extending the pragmatist tradition that I, that I identify with. Uh, and it's also my attempt to reject uh, the kind of market-driven professionalization and specialization that has overrun the academy itself. Well, on behalf of, I'm sure, not only our listeners but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of others, thank you for for the effort. Um, you know, uh, the the work is 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 really uh, um, not only valuable but very inspiring. I think. Um, thank you. So, Eddie, you've been very very generous with your time. So, thanks for talking to me, with me today on why we argue. Thank you. And thank you uh, for listening to the Why We Argue podcast, which I will remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. 
If you are so inclined, you can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook. It's at public humility. That's one word, public humility. Thanks for listening and bye for now. 